welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO, the first of the season, on Thursday, September 22nd through Tuesday, the 27th, feature Ricardo Muti and the orchestra, joined by pianist Yefim Bronfman. The program includes the U.S. premiere of Solemn Prelude by Samuel Coleridge Taylor, Brahms Piano Concerto No. 1, and after intermission, Symphony No. 2 by Tchaikovsky. Here are Philip Husher's program notes on Samuel Coleridge Taylor's Solemn Prelude, a work lasting about 10 minutes. When Theodore Thomas founded the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in 1891, he was widely known as America's great program maker, a conductor with a particular flair for putting on concerts that mixed the classics and popular favorites with unknown works by interesting new composers. As a result, Chicago became one of the first American cities to hear music by Samuel Coleridge Taylor. The week before the Chicago Orchestra's performance of the big tenor aria from Hiawatha's Wedding Feast in January 1900, the Chicago Tribune reported that Mr. Coleridge Taylor is a young Negro composer residing in England who has claimed the attention first of British musicians and latterly of the musical world at large by reason of his extraordinary gifts as a composer. Samuel's parents were a white English woman and a medical student from Sierra Leone who met in London. As the paper pointed out, Samuel had already produced a long list of works, including a clarinet quintet that was introduced to Germany by the great violinist Josef Joachim, the man who premiered Brahms' violin concerto. Coleridge Taylor was just 25 years old. Thomas programmed the aria from Coleridge Taylor's Hiawatha Cantata, a rhapsodic setting of poetry by Longfellow. It was for many years in the repertoire of every tenor in the Chicago Orchestra's ninth season. The Boston Symphony Orchestra would introduce Coleridge Taylor to its audiences with the aria two years later and the New York Philharmonic again with the same music in 1912. Four months after the Chicago premiere, the Tribune ran a dispatch from its London correspondent reporting on the first performance there of the complete Hiawatha Cantata, calling it the musical sensation of the London season. The paper said that the composer had married an English woman and become the father of a son. He has followed Wagner's example of naming his firstborn after one of his heroes, and the boy will go through life to the name of Hiawatha Coleridge Taylor. A photo of the composer was headed The New Idol of London Music World. Solemn Prelude is receiving its U.S. premiere this week in Orchestra Hall, and it's not the first work by Coleridge Taylor to be introduced to this country by the Chicago Symphony. On February 13, 1903, Thomas and the orchestra gave the U.S. premiere of Coleridge Taylor's Ballade, which had been commissioned for London's Three Choirs Festival at the recommendation of Sir Edward Elgar, who was forced to decline the offer. I wish, I wish, wish you would ask Coleridge Taylor to do it. He still wants recognition, and he is far and away the cleverest fellow going amongst the young men. He had been introduced to Coleridge Taylor by the celebrated publisher August Yeager, the Nimrod of Elgar's Enigma Variations. The Chicago Symphony performed the ballad again in November 2021 and August 2022. Like the ballad, the solemn prelude was commissioned by the Three Choirs Festival. The composer led the first performance in 1899, a year after the ballad. Elgar conducted his Enigma variations on the same program. 
A piano reduction of the solemn prelude was published at that time, but a full score was never printed and the orchestral materials were lost. The work was forgotten, but then recent detective work by the festival confirmed that the composer's manuscript was housed in the British Library in London. Faber Music prepared an edition of the work based on the manuscript, and the solemn prelude was revived at the Three Choirs Festival in July 2021 on a program with Elgar's Enigma Variations, a second performance 122 years after the first. The solemn prelude is a confident and masterful work, promising a long, rich composing life. But that was not to be. In 1912, Coleridge Taylor composed a violin concerto for Maud Powell, the Illinois native who had made her debut under Theodore Thomas in 1885 and played with him and the Chicago Orchestra at the World's Columbian Exposition in 1893. It turned out to be his last major score. He died three months after the premiere at the age of 37, scarcely older than Mozart at the time of his premature death. It is impossible to know how Coleridge Taylor's flourishing career might have continued. He was buried in Brandon Hill Cemetery in London. Four measures from Hiawatha are inscribed on his tombstone, along with a tribute from his close friend, the poet Alfred Noyes. Too young to die, his great simplicity, his happy courage in an alien world, his gentleness made all that knew him love him. A footnote on the composer and America. Coleridge Taylor did not visit Chicago when he came to the United States in 1904, but he enjoyed great success on his first American venture. He had been warned that he might encounter discrimination. I can assure you that no one will be able to stop me from paying you my long-deferred visit, he wrote to his sponsor. As for prejudice, I am well prepared for it. Surely that which you and many others have lived in for so many years will not quite kill me. I am a great believer in my race, and I will never lose an opportunity for letting my white friends here know it. Coleridge Taylor was treated like visiting royalty in America. President Theodore Roosevelt invited him to the White House, and he returned to this country in 1906 and 1910. He quickly became a staple of American culture. A group of black singers in Washington, D.C. founded the Coleridge-Taylor Choral Society. Public schools in Baltimore and Louisville were named for him. And a second footnote on the passing down of names and traditions. Just as Samuel was named after the English poet Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, his own name was the source for Coleridge-Taylor Perkinson, the composer, conductor, and pianist who was born in New York City in 1932 and eventually moved to Chicago, where he was artistic director of the performance program at the Center for Black Music Research at Columbia College until his death in 2004. Program notes by Philip Husher on Solemn Prelude by Samuel Coleridge Taylor. And now on to Brahms' Piano Concerto No. 1, a work lasting about 48 minutes. When Brahms was 20 years old, he summoned the courage to present himself at the home of Robert and Clara Schumann, the first couple of music. To his relief, the Schumanns were the perfect hosts, and Robert was genuinely overwhelmed once this odd young man, shy, boyish, and nearsighted, sat down at their piano to play his own music. 
Schumann was so deeply moved that he came out of retirement as a critic to introduce Brahms to the music world. Even outwardly, Schumann writes of that afternoon in September 1853, he bore the marks proclaiming this is a chosen one. Clara also was impressed, although perhaps it was something else about this tall, delicate man with the flowing blonde hair and poetic eyes that caught her attention. Within months, she and Brahms would play duets at that same keyboard, cautiously launching, then more deeply cementing, a relationship that sometimes dared to be more than friendship. In 1853, Robert and Clara were happily married, the proud parents of six young children, a seventh would arrive the following year, and they were celebrated musicians. Robert was one of the leading composers of the day, although he was destined to write no more important music. Clara somehow found the time to maintain her reputation as a profound and thoughtful pianist while raising the children and, despite social convention, to compose as well. But in February 1854, Robert suddenly began to suffer miserably from syphilis. Pain alternated with delirium, and he frequently experienced auditory and visual hallucinations. On February 27th, while Clara was out running errands, he left the house and threw himself off a bridge into the Rhine. He was rescued by fishermen and taken home, but within the week he was admitted to the asylum in nearby Andenich, where he would die two and a half years later. This would have been an even more difficult time for Clara if Brahms hadn't returned to Düsseldorf to be with her. We don't know for certain what transpired over these months. Brahms went to visit Robert in the asylum periodically, but Clara was not allowed to see him. On Robert's birthday in 1856, Brahms found him making alphabetical lists of towns and countries. Finally, on July 17th, Clara went along with Brahms and for the first time in more than two years saw the sad spectacle of her husband. Two days later, Robert Schumann died. What all this had to do with Brahms' music was not clear at first. In 1853, when he visited the Schumanns, he had nothing but chamber music and piano pieces to his credit. And during the next four years, he didn't venture into other genres. But Brahms was struggling with the urge to say something grand and important. And he secretly was itching to command the rich resources of a full orchestra. In March 1854, Brahms heard Beethoven's Ninth Symphony for the first time. And the impact of that still revolutionary-sounding music threw him off track. It would be 22 years before he would complete a symphony of his own, although more and more that was what he most wanted to do. One of the pieces that Brahms and Clara played together during these months of uncertainty was a big sonata for two pianos that he had begun as early as the spring of 1854, shortly after Robert was institutionalized. This music would take nearly four years to find its ideal form. At times, Brahms believed his sonata was becoming a symphony, despite the intimidating shadow of Beethoven, and at others, a concerto in Beethoven's key of D minor. By now, as he admitted to Clara and wrote to his friend, the celebrated violinist Josef Joachim, he realized that he needed more than two pianos to satisfy his musical impulses. Brahms continued to struggle with his sonata. Parts of it were scored for full orchestra and sent to Joachim for his verdict. One movement was eventually discarded and ended up considerably reworked in the German Requiem. In 
1857, he wrote to Joachim, I have no judgment about this peace anymore, nor any control over it. What finally emerged from the doubt and difficulty was a big piano concerto in D minor, Brahms' first major orchestral work. The two serenades, which date from the same time, are sketches in comparison. The Hanover premiere on January 22, 1859, with the composer at the piano, was well received, but the performance in Leipzig a few days later was a disaster. Brahms took it in stride. I think it's the best thing that could happen to me. It forces you to collect your thoughts, and it raises your courage. After all, I'm still trying and groping. The concerto, however, was a mature and fully finished work, even then, and although Brahms talked about reworking its structure, in the end, he only touched up some details. It is a powerful and dramatic score, and it bears the imprint of Brahms' grief over Robert Schumann's breakdown and death, as well as the conflict and the passion of his growing relationship with Clara. Brahms begins with a menacing timpani role and a fierce unison theme. There is not only drama in this opening, but also ambiguity, for over the first low D, the strings suggest not D minor, but B-flat major. It will take several pages before Brahms, already a master of long-range planning, unequivocally establishes D minor as the concerto's presiding tonality. He marks each of the crucial moments in the sonata form design with something unexpected, so that we not only take notice, but stop and think. For example, the soloist does not begin with the powerful first theme, but instead enters alone, commanding our attention with quiet and eloquent new music. It is in fact not new, but a transformation of the immediately preceding orchestral music. And when the pianist arrives at F major, the movement's primary harmonic destination, Brahms introduces a majestic, very expansive, truly new theme that he has been saving just for the occasion. Joachim, who once suggested that Brahms compose a theme that was appropriately magnificent, commensurately elevated and beautiful, at this point must have been particularly pleased. The biggest surprise comes at the most dramatic moment in any sonata form movement, the start of the recapitulation when the opening music and the main key are reunited. Here, Brahms disrupts our expectations by following the fierce timpani roll on D with the piano entering emphatically in E major, as if the soloist's hands simply landed on the wrong keys. Although this large movement was often shaped by the rhetoric and demeanor of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, each masterstroke here is entirely Brahms' own. The glorious, rapt adagio has been interpreted as either an homage to Robert or an ode to Clara, but in some sense it is both, with music being every bit as complicated as life. The piano line, by turns meditative, rhapsodic, impassioned, and even aggressive, never resorts to sheer display. As American pianist William Mason commented after watching Brahms perform, it was the playing of a composer, not that of a virtuoso. The brief cadenza is all the more captivating for being soft and slow. Joachim enjoyed the pithy, bold spirit of the first theme of the finale, and admired the subsequent intimate and soft B-flat major passage. 
The entire rondo is carried by the immense energy of its main theme, although near the end, Brahms makes room for more than one cadenza, followed by what Joachim called the solemn reawakening toward a majestic close. Program notes by Philip Husher on Brahms Piano Concerto Number no. One. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.